Hi, welcome to Friday, and welcome to Week in Review. I am Bill Radke. I do know journalists, so I ask some of my favorite local journalists to gather with me on Fridays and break down the week's big events for you. And we live stream the whole thing so that our faces are not wasted on just the radio. So I can go right now, and so can you. You can go on YouTube or Facebook and search KUOW Public Radio, and you'll see NPR's National Desk Correspondent, specializing on the law enforcement beat. Martin Costi, thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks, Bill. Nice to be here. Great to see you. Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Jonathan Martin. Welcome back, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Great to have you. Crosscut Central and Eastern Washington reporter Mai Huang. Maya, you're in Yakima, correct? Yes, I am. Hi, Bill. Hi, Hi everybody. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, and it's really good to see you back again, Mai. How, how, how's Yakima? Uh, it's good. It's sunny outside. Mm. It's uh, We've had some good temperatures. The days are longer. It's great. I see Taco Fest is returning. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was canceled the last two years in Yakima. Yes, it is. Back. Next month. So if you love tacos, come out, come over here. <laughs> Let's do the show over there. I saw the Yakima. Uh, actually, you can have tacos anytime. But yeah, it'll be <laughs> contained in one area. All, right. all the tacos you could ever want. Right. I know this because the Yakima Herald has a photo of a restaurant owner cooking there in at the festival in 2019 with a T-shirt that says, if you don't like tacos, I'm nacho type. So that's why oh, God. I'm you know, up on that Yakima <laughs> bit it. of news. Okay, let's begin uh, on Week in Review. And we're going to start with um, Seattle's crime response, a topic, of course, we've we've been touching on a lot. And just this week... Uh, in Columbia City, there was a fatal shooting. A man killed there, a woman in critical condition, and there were shootings in West Seattle and Pioneer Square. And we all know about shootings and shoplifting downtown. Um, from the Seattle Times, Jonathan Martin, what are you noticing about Seattle's crime response lately? Well, uh, the we had an interesting use of basically transit rules to have an enforcement corridor along Third Avenue, that main bus corridor. Mm -hmm. I hadn't really known that the um, the rules governing how con conduct on a bus could actually be extended to the bus stops themselves. Bruce Harrell uh, stepped back from that, put, a, put it on pause for reasons that are not clear at all. Um, but um, I think the downtown crime issue is an interesting one for us because it kind of bumps up between the desire for public safety and particularly in a downtown core with what is a, a very progressive law enforcement regime in Seattle. Um, you know, we have, uh, we have uh, my colleague, Danny Westney wrote about uh, a recent sting at Little Saigon, where there was an open air drug market that was really causing a lot of troubles for the businesses and the, and the residents there, and noted that with all that work that we're putting in that hotspot policing, that um, people were mostly just booked into jail and then released very quickly, including people with um, multiple felony convictions. There's one guy who had 39 arrest warrants, a gun, a bunch of fentanyl and cash, and got out. Um, the prosecutors had wanted a $75,000 bail, and he was let out on $2,500 and was um, spent basically a day or two in jail. So it's interesting that I, I don't quite know where this conflict is going to land, but it's one that we'll keep watching. I mentioned, Martin, you're on the law enforcement beat uh, at NPR. Any, any uh, observations on all of this? Well, Seattle isn't alone, that's for sure. I mean, um, I just came back from Philadelphia reporting on some stories and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're breaking not just uh, homicide records since the 90s, which is what a lot of big cities have been doing, but all time homicide records. And, you know, uh, 
you know, when Philadelphia says we've had more murders than ever before last year, and we're on pace to break that record again this year, you know, that's that it, it's a bonafide emergency there. Um, and and they they have similar, but everywhere you see these these sort of intersections between you know the um, the push for reform and progressivism or whatever it is on one side, especially the, you know gained so much so much momentum in twenty twenty versus sort of this, you know, some of these grim realities. And, and you know, a lot of this, you know, criminologists love to talk about sort of what do we really know in terms of deterrence, what really works. And, you know, we're doing this massive experiment right now. And the one thing that a lot of them can agree on, they do disagree on a lot of things, but one thing is the sense that um, length of punishment isn't really what deters crime, but the sense that you will get caught and there will be a penalty of some sort. They call this swift and certain deterrence. You know, that that is one thing, you know, criminologists on different parts of the spectrum kind of agree on. So the real question, I guess, for them would be looking at the situation you just described there in Little Saigon or someplace else. Is there a, is there a sort of a pervasive sense in Seattle, in Philadelphia, somewhere else that there's a greater likelihood that if I do certain things, I will get caught and I will pay some kind of penalty or not? Or is there a sense of just impunity that it's catch and release? And you know, whether or not you choose to believe the theory, that is kind of the dominant theory in criminology right now is that you have to have a sense of consequence. And I'm not sure that exists right now in Seattle. Yeah, we seem to be going back and forth on that spectrum. Um, my, I know you're, as I said, you're in Yakima. Do you have any observations from there or, or, or questions for uh, I mean, for I Martin? just, I agree. I don't think Seattle or Philadelphia is alone um, with crime, unfortunately. Um, I mean, in Yakima, we've seen a number of shootings recently, um, some fatal. And, you know, most recently, we had a shooting at Eisenhower High School um, in Yakima, uh, which killed a, a teenager. Um, it was his cousin, um, his a suspect. Um, and, you know, there's been a number of uh, gang related shootings um, recently. Um, you know, the gang, gang issue has always been a problem in our region, but it seems to kind of reached a fever pitch more recently. So I think, um, I think everyone is grappling with, you know, how do we, how do we solve this problem? How do, and then, yeah, how do we, you know, punish people and, and how, and actually how to get convictions. Cause in some cases, you know, we've had homicides in Yakima where, you know, where, where you think it's a slam dunk and then, you know, the guy gets off and, you know, it's because the case didn't work or the prosecutor, um, you know, didn't, make the case so it's it's challenging for sure does yakima have the same sorry this is martin i'm jumping in i'm just kind of curious the mm -hmm. same sort of backlog still post-covid and just processing cases in the courts because that sure is a factor yeah, here for sure. yeah absolutely yeah i mean we i think yeah we definitely have seen a backlog for sure so mm -hmm. i think we're they're starting to get into it but yeah i think uh, i think we're again um like other places covid has really impacted the court system too so so, Jonathan, where does this put Seattle in terms of defunding the police? Well, I, I was just thinking there, there is um, I could wouldn't blame your listeners for having some cognitive dissonance about <laughs> our approach to crime. You know, we really we had a city council just two years ago pledging to defund um, that um, they didn't um, they did some cuts, but uh, it was not a, a full, sort of full defund. And now we're talking about using savings from the large number of police officers who left to hire to have hiring incentives because now we want more you realize that uh, the response times have escalated dramatically um, particularly for low level crimes but even for more serious crimes uh, so 
I don't know where we're at, Bill. I, it's it, like I said, it feels like, it feels to me like cognitive dissonance. Reading our morning and our morning news meeting almost every day now. There's a there's um, our police reporters are chasing a shooting, and this is a city that had typically 25 murders a year or so. It was kind of famous for having a low violent crime rate, and uh, I don't know what we make of it. Um, it's, it's really kind of as a longtime Seattleite. Um, it's really, it's really disturbing. It feels like the, there's a city in, in flux. And and, the, and there's something about the nature of some of the crime. I, I, statistically, I'm not sure any of this is significant, but but anecdotally, so I live in Wedgwood, and you know, Sunday morning I walk over to the uh, Rite Aid on the corner of 35th and um, 85th. There, you know, little quiet Wedgwood, and uh, it's all plywooded up because someone rammed through the glass front of the of the building overnight to try to get an ATM machine, which of course we've seen multiple cases of this around town. I don't know if it's one group or copycats, but you know, the, the woman on duty at the counter, you know, an elderly woman working there still at that right age, you know, was totally shaken. She hadn't seen it, but coming in and seeing that and, and she just, we chatted for a while and she had the sense of things have shifted and she was freaked out. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's really interesting. Um, you know, being over here and, and hearing, I mean, from Yakma, hearing people talk about Seattle and crime, because um, it's almost like I feel like it's almost used as like a political hot topic. Um, a lot of conservatives will almost use Seattle as like, oh, well, look at all the crime here. Look at, you know, look, look what happened when they defunded the police It's almost like they can use it as it'd be interesting. I mean, to see if it's used as like a campaign topic or as a, you know, as kind of a campaign tool to say, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put more funding or like you know and i feel like nationally seattle in general has been a big hot topic in terms of and you know kind of a a lightning rod for conservatives you know kind of a whipping boy kind of to say you know look at look at seattle they tried defunding it didn't work so but did we um, is that is that is that the national uh perception is that seattle defunded the police i yeah among yeah among conservatives i mean if you watch any conservative talk show it's like you know, they can't get Seattle out of their mouths. I mean, I, I go to the gym and I watch, you know, I watch, you know, the national news or, na- you know, outlets like Fox News. And it's like they talk about Seattle all the time and they talk about the crime and take off about homelessness. And, yeah, it's like it's really it's like pe- political catnip for for some folks over there. They also can't tell us apart from Portland, which is part of the phenomenon. There. <laughs> they always confuse us with what happened in Portland the same summer. Yeah, right. Uh, Jonathan, before we leave the uh, uh, topic of crime, the Seattle Times reported on the fact that pot shops are a crime target because they've got a lot of cash on hand. So is is there any uh, realistic attempt to change that? Well, this is, um, yeah, I think that the, the point that Martin made about sort of the maybe the a sense of impunity um, for committing crimes is kind of goes, go, hits right at that trend. But yeah, there's, there's a the number of um, cannabis store um, armed robberies. I think I, I saw that we had doubled. We had twice as many this year as uh, so far in 2022 as we'd had last year. And um, the it, the real issue there is these are cash businesses because Congress has failed to act on a whole set of laws uh, proposals to uh, allow um, cannabis shops to bank. Um, it's it's a uh, it's kind of absurd in, in my view, um, because, you know, 38 states in the country have some legal form of, of cannabis. The voters have spoken on marijuana legalization, whether Congress is actually hearing this or not. So 
um, the lack of action on these um, marijuana banking reforms that would allow them to access to FDIC insured, you know, banks um, is really it's not a it's not a statement of the drug war. What it's doing is endangering um, staff at these these stores. Yeah, it's just really fascinating to me to see that all these states, um, you know, politicians, they love the tax revenue. I mean, these pot shops bring in a lot of tax revenue, but yet, um, you know, in Washington state, we've had legalization for a decade now, and these businesses are still not seen as legitimate. They're still seen as kind of, you know, these shady shops. And if you talk to pot owners, they're, they're business people. They're, they're just as much part of the business community as, you know, a, a clothing store or a grocery store or any other business, but yet they're treated like, oh, we're your black market business. So we can't lend you money or, you know, at the, you know, the, these laws prevent them from getting loans and, you know, from accessing credit card systems, things that would, yeah, would make them legitimate. And I feel like also from a crime standpoint, these pot shops are seen as targets because yeah, they're seen as these like shady places where they can maybe get away with robbing and whatnot. Yep. Yeah, Mike's right. It's a billion dollars per budget cycle in pot taxes. Um, they, yeah, it's yeah, like right? 2% of the state budgets now. It's like, it's not a minor industry anymore. Oh. And, mm-hmm. and I think the cash thing is a big factor, but also just remember how we intentionally zoned pot shops to be away from other places that are mm-hmm. maybe a little more paid attention to, you know, schools, all that stuff. You know, we, we ended up putting them on Lake City Way uh, or where it, you know, and it's, if you're, if you want to get in, get out fast with a gun, they're, you know, geographically, they're often a good spot too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, definitely in where I am. Yeah, they're definitely kind of out of the way. They're kind of in rougher areas of the city. So yeah, mm-hmm. that makes total sense. And Jonathan, you used the word impunity. Were you saying that there's a, especially, a, that impunity is especially at play when it comes to pot shops or are those just side by side? I think those are side by side. Okay. I think we're, we're seeing a lot of retail thefts. Um, and the marijuana stores maybe are particularly vulnerable because you know that they're not doing credit card transactions. Right. Mm-hmm. While everybody else more, is more and more. I mean, it's it. There are places that are not dealing in cash at all. So, so the places that are dealing in cash are are even fewer and fewer. Okay, let's let's pause there. You're listening to Week in Review. Maybe you're watching Week in Review on YouTube or Facebook. And um, we are going to take a short break. We're going to talk Starbucks union vote. Uh, We're going to talk about a a complaint, a lawsuit, in fact, that our uh, state redistricting is uh, being improperly done on the basis of race. Uh, That and more coming up on Week in Review. Don't go away. Bill Radke here, bringing you the news of the week and figuring it all out with the Seattle Times, Jonathan Martin, NPR's Martin Costi, and Crosscuts, Mai Huang. Mai, our state recently redrew our voting boundaries. We do this every year. It's called redistricting. And how you draw those boundaries matters because it affects who gets elected. It affects how much say a voter can have depending where they live. And my, there is another lawsuit claiming that these boundaries were unfairly drawn. What is the argument? Yeah. So, um, so Ben Garcia, he's um, he's a Sunnyside resident. He sued the state. He's saying that um, the quote was racial gerrymandering for the 15th uh, legislative district, which is in central Washington. And he's arguing that it was purely drawn based on race, and that there was no justification to do so. And 
My understanding is that you can gerrymander for partisan reasons if your state allows that, but you can't you can't gerrymander on a racial or ethnic basis. Is that right? Oh, that's what that's what this guy's arguing. And, you know, he's saying that specifically. Um, and I guess, you know, to give some context to why this is interesting is that as um, as many know that there was another lawsuit that was filed in January um, for the opposite reason that was saying that they did not redraw the district properly and broke um, uh, voting rights laws because they did not draw the majority Latino district properly and weakened Latino voter strength. So this is almost the 180 of that. Um, and it kind of reflects, um, you know, when the, re the, the commission that worked on this map you had two Republicans and you had two Democrats. The Republicans wanted to keep it as it is, you know, because it's basically white and conservative. The Democrats wanted a Latino majority district to increase the chances of a Democrat candidate. And they kind of arrived here, you know, in this compromise. And clearly uh, nobody's really happy with what turned out. Yeah, I, the, I know the U.S. Supreme Court in the 90s ruled that racial gerrymandering is a violation of constitutional rights. Race is not the same as ethnicity. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, no, you know, voters don't vote monolithically by race. Um, but right. but can, can you give us any sense whether, given these different arguments, would you say Latino voter strength has been diluted or strengthened under the the new maps i mean depends on who you talk to <laughs> i mean that's what's really fascinating for me about this is that yeah if you talk to the person the folks that filed the lawsuit in january they'd say it's diluted um because and and that there's been a his you know a historic attempt at suppressing latino voters and that this is just an addition to that but if you talk to the this the ben garcia and the people behind this lawsuit They'll argue that's strengthened and that, you know, and, and of course, there's been a number. We've talked about this before, Bill. There's been a number of court cases that have led to Latino majority districts in the city of Yakima, for example. So, you know, they're definitely, you know, Republicans would argue that the Latino vote is strengthened and that. And so, yeah, it's very much who we talk to. And that's what makes, you know, this this whole thing very interesting. Any other uh, reactions, questions uh, from uh, Martin or Jonathan? But not to get too much into the process, but Washington has had a uh, has a redistricting process, which has been kind of held up nationally. It it has a commission. It in on some states uh, task the legislature uh, legislators with redrawing maps, which is obviously an, an inherently fraught proposition. Mm -hmm. um, but Washington has a process in having two. Um, two part of, uh, uh, a four-person commission with a, a non-voting chair, and each of those, and two of um, two from each party. So the Democrats and Republicans each dominate two, which really requires obviously compromise. And that process has has um, has you know seemed to be mostly worked. So it's been held up nationally. This this time around, uh, <laughs> they they kind of fell all over themselves. Yeah. Um, for one thing, they violated Open Meetings the Open Meetings Act. Um, for basically voting in secret, uh, they after they they ended up paying one hundred and thirty-seven thousand dollars to settle that um, lawsuit by the Washington Coalition for Open Government. Um, uh, Melissa Santos at Crosscut recently reported that they also withheld text messages mm -hmm. um, from other process, um, and uh, the chair of the commission, the non-voting chair, quit uh, in protest because. 
the Dem the um, Secretary of State, who's a Democrat, um, did not uh, back the the commission's maps uh, in a in a lawsuit. They basically decided to not sort of defend it, and the whole thing looks stinky. Frankly, it's a bad it was a bad process of what had been pretty good Washington, pretty good government up until yeah. now. I mean, what's incredible is if you look at the process itself, like up, leading up to the vote, there was so much public input. There were so many stakeholders involved. I mean, with the with this Latino, with just Latino voters, there were several groups. You had the UCLA Voting Rights Project. I mean, you had a ton of feedback. There was not a lack of public, you know, feedback and input on this process. But yet all that was totally disregarded at the end. And yeah, I mean, the lack of confidence in these maps, it's just, it's fascinating to see them just back off and suddenly be like, nope, I'm not, I'm not associating with this. <laughs> is, is there, I'm sorry, I'm a little confused. Is, is there this lack of confidence you say for both the legislative redistricting and for the state legislature and for the congressional districts? Or is it, are we just talking about, because your initial, the lawsuit you're reporting on is, is, is for the legislative right. district, right? So um, is this true also um, for the congressional districts? It's my it's understanding kind of... that the legislative districts are more of a pinch point. And mm -hmm. I think that there, I think the in Yakima, I believe there's also an issue involving whether uh, um, the Yakima nation uh, was split into two different, different districts um, in an attempt to, to accommodate the uh, a Latino voting block. Um, right. And it, it basically um, kind of screwed the, uh, the Yakima nation. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more about the, the state legislative districts then. Right. Yeah. But I just think in general, like, um, you know, even if the congressional, even if they're not as taking as much issue with the congressional district, I mean, just the whole process, the, the lack of confidence in the process is is striking. And to, to see all these people on staff, on the staff, like Jamie Nixon, you know, he's been very public on Twitter about, you know, just the fallacies of the process. And just to see all these folks just just really express frustration and anger at how just the process unfolding that badly. Right. Were <laughs> legislative staffers improperly involved? And then again with the deleted texts. No, Jeez. you know, I, you know, I, I handle a lot of, I handle um, public records act litigation for the Seattle times. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that'd be interesting is this is a case where actually the text messages were deleted right after the, the maps were approved. And this was by one of the commissioners, you know, that's a, that's, potentially a crime yeah. uh, you're it's not the it's not the violation of public records acts a crime it's it's deletion of um, government records and we've just never seen anybody prosecuted for something like that right and i think that would be interesting as a message to public officials across washington if you if there was a case of a prosecution uh of um, deleting text messages as we've seen that the of course you're in the city of seattle um, case with the Seattle Times involved in suing the city of Seattle over right. missing text messages as well. Yep. So I just want to put that out there. Just it would be an interesting message that would be sent. <laughs> yes. I think I, it'd be a great message just because, um, I mean, we're speaking a little outside of redistricting. I just think there's been an assault by state politicians on po open records and open meetings in general. We've had, we've seen legislation attempted <laughs> at the state level <laughs> to limit access to public records. And I, yeah, I, it would be really interesting if something like that happened 
And, you know, maybe that would make politicians back off a little bit in terms of trying to, you know, limit access to public records. Yeah, well, especially the last two years when everything was forced into the digital sphere, every, mm-hmm. every what would have been a hallway conversation, yes. um, which would have been you know, immune from these requests, all of a sudden there's a digital trail and the, the temptation for a human being just to cover that up real fast. It's not, not a good one, but it's a real one. <laughs> That's Martin Costi, NPR, National Dex, a desk correspondent. Uh, we've got Seattle Times senior investigative editor Jonathan Martin and Crosscut Central and Eastern Washington reporter Mai Huang. And moving on to some other news this week, employees at a Capitol Hill Starbucks voted unanimously to be represented by a union. This is the store at Denny and Broadway, and it's the first unionized Starbucks now on the West Coast. Um, there have been uh, there have been unions at Starbucks before. Maybe we can talk about that. But Jonathan, this does follow yes votes around Buffalo, New York, and Mesa, Arizona, now Seattle. Uh, why is this happening? And, and do you think this is a um, do you think this is going to keep spreading? I'd note too that the, an REI store in Manhattan um, also um, voted to unionize. There's Apple stores that are being um, there's unionization efforts, um, Amazon, and certainly the Amazon, um, Amazon is, um, has a, this happening on a bunch of fronts. Yep. Um, you know, I think that the, you kind of the why now question, I think, I mean, I, this is, uh, my theory is that, um, I think workers are feeling empowered. Now you have a very tight labor market. You have, um, the, um, you know, the uh, people are just sort of desperate to get staff. And you also um, have retail growth is really is just going crazy. It's almost sort of defying the pandemic, um, you know, theory that, you know, growth in the retail sector is twice what it was before the pandemic. So you have companies making a lot of money. And I think a third factor I just put in is just sort of like personal theory. I think that if anybody's worked with um, millennials and Gen Xers in their offices, I think they have a different view of um, the workplace. I think mm-hmm. there's a, the status quo is not okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a, the, the idea of sort of paying your dues and sort of just sort of sucking it up does not, um, does not resonate well with the younger, younger workers. So I think that probably those three factors in, uh, the, the, the worker empowerment, the, 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 the <laughs> companies making a bunch of money, and sort of a, a generational intolerance for the status quo. And in Seattle, the cost of living, uh, obviously. But uh, yeah, any, yes. any other reaction, Martin or my? Yeah, I just I think we need to look at the industries that are unionizing. We're, we're looking at retail, service. Um, you know, um, we're seeing some uh, union activity. You know, attempts at union activity over here in Eastern Washington with ag too. So these are industries that. Um, had to work during COVID. They were the essential worker. I mean, not all retail, but a lot of retail, um, you know, restaurants and things re- remained open for takeout and that sort of thing. And so they had to bear a lot of risk for illness. And, you know, so the top, you know, the topic of co- safety, re- safety rules and working conditions were top of mind for a lot of these workers, because, you know, they were not only trying to go to work, they're trying to not get COVID. And, so, you know, you have a group of workers that felt like, hey, we kind of, we were, we put a lot of risk. We took a lot on a lot of risk for you mm-hmm. and we deserve, we deserve a lot more than you're giving us. And, you know, they see the utilization as a way to say, hey, we need to get more pay. Yeah. I mean, in, in the Yakima Valley during 2020, you saw these fruit packing warehouses 
protests. And yeah, I agree with Jonathan. There is a sense of empowerment among these workers. They have a lot of public goodwill. I mean, the public sees these workers are working hard, they're bearing a lot of risks. So they have the public sentiment in their favor. So yeah, so that's kind of, I can see why unions are getting passed because, you know, you don't only have among your coworkers, you have the public in support of you because they've seen you work during the pandemic. I think part of also the success right now, these, uh, and it's still relatively speaking, right? It's still a very small percentage of the American workforce, but, um, you know, until now, at least, you know, the only growing, only section of the the workforce that was growing that was in terms of unionization was public sector workers. Um, That was sort of the holdout. But I I think maybe one of the reasons also that these drives are succeeding more than they used to is uh, the young workers simply don't have a family memory of someone like a parent working for the unions, you know, that's so far in the past now, you know, the deunionization has been going on for decades now. And so some of the, some of the criticisms of union, of being in a union, some of the, the old saws about, you know, the downsides about, um, you know, wasted time about bureaucracy, about I'm not, you know, all the, other, all the kinds of things that an Amazon or a Starbucks might raise, you know, you're an associate, you're not a worker, that kind of thing. I, I don't, I think it falls flat. I think some of these younger workers simply don't have echoes in, a, in their family of, of, you know, an, old, an uncle who said, yeah, I hated the union. You know, mm-hmm. they, they just don't have those, um, those negative family memories. So I think it's just, there's just more fertile ground. Yeah, the unions, there, as I said, there were some Starbucks stores unionized in the 80s and 90s, and, and it didn't last. Um, mm-hmm. Is that just because people actually, don't tend to... Yes, Jonathan. I was actually working at Starbucks when the union, the union there was a commercial, uh, uh, UFCW uh, had unionized the roasting plant where I was at. Mm-hmm. And um, it had been, it, was, it basically was decertified itself. Um, and it was interesting going back and looking at the profiles of Howard Schultz written when he ran for president. Uh, there's there's a lot of attention paid to that, how much Howard Schultz really put pressure on the workers to uh, to, to break up the union and, and really fought unionization efforts for a long time with, you know, with the uh, caveat that Starbucks had a reputation for being pretty good to its workers in terms of health care benefits and some stock options and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you try to wear kind of the white hat um, as an employer. Um, but that there is that history that um, that Starbucks uh, um, Starbucks CEO at the time would really pressure the union to break up. Jonathan, do you recall what was the rap against the union at the time? What was the rationale for decertifying? You know, I, I was like a 20-something college kid, I paid no attention whatsoever <laughs> to this, to be honest with you. So I don't remember what the what the knock was. It was a small, it was a pretty small union, if I recall, um, 100, a couple hundred people. Oh. Um, so. And food workers tend to come and go. Well, we'll talk, we'll talk more about union votes uh, because they're, um, they're, they're going to keep coming, Starbucks included. So uh, we'll get back to that. You're listening to Week in Review with the Seattle Times, Jonathan Martin there, and NPR's Martin Costi and Crosscut's Mai Huang. I'm Bill Radke. Short break now, and uh, the mall lives, the shopping mall lives when we return. It's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. And don't take my word for it. You can see that NPR's Martin Costi is on the show today with Crosscuts Mai Huang and the Seattle Times' Jonathan Martin because we uh, we stream this thing live on YouTube and Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio. Continuing on with the week's news, we have heard for decades that the American shopping mall is dead. And Mai, you uh, have uh, found that that's not really true. 
Yeah, I just wrote a story for Crosscut. Um, I wrote a story about the mall, Rally Mall. It's in a town called Union Gap. Um, actually, little bit of fun history. Union Gap used to be called Yakima. And uh, what happened was, was that the trains went up to, to North Yakima and there was a compelling deal um, back then that, you know, got all the businesses that went, they went up to North Yakima, which is now like the city of Yakima. And so, um, so this is kind of funny that Union Gap is now our major retail center because back in the, fa- the 1800s, it was everyone was leaving Union Gap and now everyone's coming back in. So, And it's called Union Gap, not because a Gap store opened there in the 1800s, <laughs> but why is it called Union Gap? Do you know? You know, you know, this is embarrassing. I don't, well, I don't know. I, don't know. I should okay. know, but I don't. But anyway, but there's a mall, a shopping yes. mall that, that, that lives on. 50 yeah. years celebrating 50 years. Yeah, and so this mall, just, um, it's, they're marking 50 years in operation this year. And so I just kind of got curious because, I mean, you hear this narrative about malls dying, and yet here is a mall that has been in operation for 50 years and actually is doing pretty well. And I've actually noticed, and I noticed like a whole bunch of local businesses moving there recently. And so I went and talked to one of them. And I think one of the businesses I talked to is a clothing store called Wild J. It had been in downtown Yakima for a few years. And yeah, the the mall actually pursued um, the owner. Her name's Shadira Amara. And and she's like, nah, I don't want to go to the mall. I, I feel comfortable downtown. She felt she was a boutique that's where she belonged. And then finally, you know, she went through COVID. COVID was hard on her business, like every other business. And so she took the call. She went and met with them and said, and she said, they, they sat down with me and they told me the numbers. And when she heard the numbers, you know, the foot traffic numbers, it was well above whatever she was getting downtown. (laughs) And then a month later she moved to the mall. And so, yeah, um, there are people still going to the mall. And I will say, I think a big caveat is that we're located in a relatively less populated area than like Seattle. So the nearest mall to us is about 85 miles away in the Tri-Cities in Kennewick. So there is a little bit of advantage because there's a bit of a captive market that the Valley Mall has that maybe, you know, mall, you know, all the malls in Seattle, you know, there's like five or six malls that are competing against each other. So we don't have that level of competition, but still your mall could still die if you don't respond to you know, community changes, the market needs, all that stuff. And I, you know, I think the small did all those things. And so now they're, you know, I mean, I think people there would still say that, hey, I still drive to Seattle, go to, you know, or Bellevue Square, because they have this fancy shop that isn't in Yakima. But for the most part, you can pretty much buy what you need over there. So I want to hear from the two Martins. Um, I'll just pass (laughs) on some comments we got from, um, from the Community Feedback Club, which is you, you can just go to KUOW.org slash feedback and sign up and you'd be one of the people who we asked for your opinion on some of the uh, on, on current events. So we asked some of you at the Community Feedback Club. Karin says, nothing brings me to a mall. Even pre-pandemic, it was a place to hang out as a teen. And I see potential for becoming a mall walker when I'm older and not <laughs> up for walking trails in the rain anymore. Otherwise, malls are overwhelming to my senses and reek of capitalism. Tanya says nothing would bring me to malls, but dead malls would make fabulous homeless shelters, bathrooms, food court with full kitchens, stores made into rooms. 
And Iskra says, I learned to love Northgate when I moved to the North End. My stereotypes about them being bland and soulless were erased when I realized every class and age of people shopped there. Among the customers, I usually heard at least five different languages. In a 10-minute commute, I could shop for all my clothes, bedding, furniture, housewares, get shoes and watch repaired, buy books, get dinner out, followed by a movie. Now I can watch hockey practice? I miss the old Northgate desperately. And I would just... Uh, chime in or echo that um, maybe if there was a stereotype when I, that, I, that I'm old enough to remember that malls were suburban and white and, um, and, and bland and all the same, uh, Crossroads Shopping Mall is like the United Nations. And <clears throat> so anyway, any, yeah. uh, any other reactions to malls? I agree about Northgate. I uh, I miss it too. I, I, it was a total cultural crossroads. I mean, yeah, it's not my favorite architecture, but if it's miserable outside, uh, I, I'm sure. I I, I thought the uh, the forecasts of the doom of that um, model were a little premature. I I have an eighth grade daughter who keeps. Uh, I think she loved fell in love with the idea with of the mall on Stranger Things, and she keeps telling me, oh, "Boy, you were lucky to grow up in the '80s. That must have been so great." Yeah, but no, horrible so, monsters attack shopping malls. I think in that, that was part of it too. <laughs> she probably, Exciting. Like kids on bikes. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> but you know, if especially if it's miserable outside, uh, it is it is nice to have everything in one spot. You know. Yeah. I was curious. My my is the um, is the Union Gap Mall more upscale or is it more sort of a traditional? Yeah, it's definitely thing? more traditional. And I also want to jump on uh, Bill's point about diversity because obviously being in the Yakima Valley, uh, Yakima County is uh, half Latino. So um, so yeah, it's not white people. Um, you know, um, there are people uh, there's um, in fact you know I think the Latino market is a crucial part of the mall and this is why the mall is host you know one of the things the mall is doing is there um, the mall manager is on the board of directors for the Central Washington Hispanic Chamber of Commerce they're hosting their big Estrella awards in the fall and they're also speaking of Taco Fest you talked about that earlier in the show mm -hmm. the Valley Mall is actually the presenting sponsor of that Taco Fest oh, so nice they definitely know them. what their market is yes mm -hmm. It's interesting. The malls that have survived in the Seattle area can seem to kind of thrive are kind of the more luxury ones. Like, mm -hmm. you know, U Village and Bellevue Square seem to be going like they're going, they're expanding, not shrinking. Whereas the Northgate is kind of a, like I said, basically a, 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 a little shop adjacent to a hockey complex. And uh, the, um, I, I grew up and I grew up and went to the Tacoma Mall back in the day and would um, make the, make the trek in when I lived out way outside the city. But um, it was sort of the place to go go and be seen, very much like Stranger Things. Yeah, Pacific Place Mall has really slimmed down. You know, there's a it's far fewer or barely any na known national chains. It's it, like you mentioned, my it's much more local. There's there's a lot of local places, um, a lot of uh, sort of arts and crafts and. Mm. And uh, and we go to the we've we've now my family we like Din Tai Fung and instead of going uh, to the east side where the where you'll wait for hours uh, the Din Tai Fung at Pacific Place Mall it's still pretty hopping but uh, since that mall is just not the attraction it used to be uh, we can we can get seated well and downtown a downtown mall right now given what's going on in downtown Seattle in terms of public safety I mean the. <laughs> It, it, right. You know, the, the contrast between the scene there and Bellevue right now at Christmas was pretty stark when we went shopping. It's like, oh, Bellevue still feels normal, not downtown. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that just speaks to the trend towards of retail going out of, you know, mall major, although not maybe in Seattle so much, but I mean, the, you know, my story talked about how, you know, the Valley Mall was actually struggling in the 90s because the big mall there was the downtown Yakima Mall. Mm-hmm. And then that mall closed in 2003. So because all the all the merchants like uh, Bon Marche went out to the Union Gap Mall. So yeah. I think that's not surprising to see Pacific Place is not doing. And also, I would like to point out, yeah, Crosscut, we actually did a story and um, my colleague at Crosscut did a story about, you know, the increase in local businesses. So, yeah, that's that's definitely happening at Pacific Place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, finally, uh, before we leave this, um, Eric, when we asked this question about malls, Eric wrote in and said, does you village count as a mall? I go there. It's dog friendly, uh, offers a lot in terms of product, variety and food. I would say U Village is a mall, even though yeah. it's heavily outdoors. Uh, yeah, Martin, I mean, Martin's I not think... so sure. I think he looks. No, it's it's that California model, whatever they call that, right? Yeah. The, um, yeah. yeah, I think. Except the... with umbrellas everywhere. Sorry, Martin. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry about. Sorry to interrupt. The uh, uh, the uh, it's the ICSC. Speaking of which, they went through a name change. It used to be the International Council of Shopping Centers, and then during COVID, they actually changed to the innovating it's like innovating commerce for you know for communities or something to reflect that they're not just a trade organization for shopping centers um but Mm -hmm. yeah actually they would classify probably university village as an open air shopping center so there's so technically probably right um so that was uh those were some of our listeners at our community feedback club which again if you want to be part of that and tell us what you think kuow.org slash feedback uh, okay, we're coming toward the the end of the show um, on Week in Review. Before we give you something to smile about, as we always do at the end, I, Jonathan Martin, I noted that the Seattle Times reported this week on the former Speaker of the State House redirecting, I guess, a, a couple million dollars that was going to go to a couple of nonprofits. He got it earmarked for a nonprofit that he co-founded. But I, I, you're the investigations editor. Is that scandalous? Is that not allowed? Will you explain that? Well, I mean, earmarks are, are an old business, whether they're in Olympia or in Washington, D.C., and this is basically an earmark. Um, it was an unusual process, and but it caught my eye because uh, it really went counter to what uh, the, the King County, the state, Seattle, have tried to do about homeless response, is it to regionalize the approach and to basically try and take politics out of it. Um, the previous model in Seattle was basically for city council members to kind of earmark for their favorite nonprofits to do this service and that service. The regional homeless authority is it's supposed to be sort of more policy focused, sort of the experts in charge. And um, they didn't like the model, um, which is basically the tiny house village that was run by this nonprofit that Frank Chop co-founded, uh, Low Income Housing Institute, has really um, sort of cornered the market on. It's a small, tiny house village with like case management around it. Um, they want, the regional homeless authority want to have more mix and types of these, these uh, facilities. And they had actually turned down two uh, proposals from Lehigh, uh, as Erica Barnett reported. Um, and so th- it was unusual that the, you had a politician basically going in and telling the, um, the experts that were trying to really sort of put a different approach on our homeless response, no, I know better, and this is what you're going to do with the money. Okay, and this is, but we don't know that Frank Chop is personally benefiting. He's just was in very, he has been in the past very involved with this and, and, and other 
service organizations as well. Yeah, right? certainly. Yeah. Frank Shop has a long history in doing, you know, in being involved in low-income housing development, of course. Right. Um, but that was the thing that I think that was struck us in our newsroom is like, where there really was just a counter to what we've decided as a region that we had the best way to approach homelessness. Right. Uh, also this week, our governor signed three gun-related bills. One prohibits the sale of gun magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. Another is aimed at untraceable so-called ghost guns. It says guns and their parts have to have serial numbers. A third law bans weapons at public gatherings like school board meetings and election-related facilities. Uh, Martin, I don't know if it, you, in covering law enforcement for NPR, if you uh, deal much in in gun law, but uh, any reaction so, yeah. to any of that? No, uh, yeah, uh, these uh, these moves have been echoed around the country to some degree or other, depending on the politics of the state. Um, you know, when it comes to magazines, uh, you know, it, it it you can argue a lot about whether this affects the practical access to to the larger magazines. Um, obviously, it's uh, you can still own them, you can buy them in another state, so. Does it really make a difference? California, which banned them, you know, still has people with longer magazines uh, being used in crimes. Uh, I, the reason I think there's some attention on it, um, you know, whether or not you know this law actually restricts the access, the reason there's so much concern is just because the nature of gun crime has really shifted in the last just two or three years. <clears throat> excuse me, even towards this more undisciplined spraying of 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 um, ammo around by often younger shooters um you know just mentioning my trip to philadelphia i was i was at a scene with the homicide detectives and and they're 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 used to seeing at least like 15 20 shells at a scene that's just because that's just the sort of the spraying and a lot of bystanders are getting hit when they you know, aren't even being aimed at that kind of thing so there's a sense that well if you limit the ammo supply for a given assailant at a certain time maybe we'll have less of that whether that comes out in the numbers in terms of numbers of victims, I don't know. But um, I think that's where that's coming from. The ghost guns thing, I mean, that's also numerically a very small, small portion of guns. I mean, we've had gun sales in general in this country are through the roof, and that's for normal guns, not these unmarked guns. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was just looking at a new survey out of a group at the University of Chicago. It says one in five American households purchased a gun during the pandemic. One in five. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, And, and so uh, whether what the connection... To crime is there becomes very political, very heated, very fast. But there is there is analysis showing that the time to crime on a purchase gun has gotten shorter in the last two years. That in other words, the number of months it takes for a newly purchased legal gun to end up being used in a crime uh, that time has has shortened significantly on average. And that tells you that more new guns, more new legally purchased guns, are somehow ending up in in crime, whether they were stolen or whether they were used by the legal owner, that's unclear. But, you know, things have shifted in the last couple of years. And I think there's a reckoning here for the society in terms of just the number of new guns just out there. I was, Martin, I was struck by like, when I was seeing that the magazine limits were going in, felt Mm -hmm. like kind of flashbacks like 2014. Like this feels like it was Mm -hmm. a very, like, I feel like there's a big push on these magazines around, I think around Sandy Hook, if I recall. Yeah. Um, because there was a large magazine using that one. I just felt, I was a little surprised Washington has been done a lot of gun regulations, mostly by initiative, some of it by initiative. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that it, it was felt like old, an old story yeah. that came back. Yeah. I, there must, I think there was an attempt at the time, maybe that failed, but, uh, but yeah, and it's one of those things that the, it's already been tested in the court. So, you know, if you're, if you're on the gun control side, you can pass this, right. And it'll, it'll hold up. I think it's the, the, the thinking there. 
Yeah, speaking of past crimes, um, my colleague Melissa Santos did a story about the solicitation and one and she actually interviewed um someone that was um that survived the shootings in Las Vegas. That speaking of going back to the past, um, mm-hmm. you know, at that music festival. And I think mm-hmm. the thing that struck me reading that story was her observation that the shooter was using a magazine that could shoot hundreds, <laughs> hundreds. Um, and that's I mean, for me, like that was that was a visual, like, and I, you know. Well, that was the bump stock issue. I I was, I was there covering that. And and Mm -hmm. there the issue was this sort of, you know, kludgy thing you can buy to keep it shooting when it's semi-automatic as opposed to automatic. Um, Mm -hmm. But he, I mean, he had several guns. He just went one from one to the next. Yeah. 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 So that image, like it's kind of that image and, you know, and I can see why legislation is that would pass if you have someone telling you that story and then, you know, that image of, you know, a magazine that large, you know, Okay, we've got now. I need something to smile about after all that. We've got three minutes left in our show. I would. Ju- we always try to end on something hopeful or smile worthy. I saw that our governor is probably going to sign this law, presumably designating pickleball our official state sport. It was invented on Bainbridge Island. And KOW, thank you, Tom Bonsi, for telling us that we would be the 16th state to have a state sport. Hawaii has surfing. Minnesota has ice hockey. Alaska has dog mushing. Don't ask me to explain Colorado, where the state sport is packborough racing, hmm. or Maryland, where it's jousting. Hmm. Oregon and Idaho don't have an official state sport. At the Washington legislature, Senator John Lovick quoted a constituent to explain why he served up pickleball to be the state sport. She said Washington will someday be known as the birthplace of Boeing, Microsoft, Starbucks, and pickleball. Let's boast about this history and make pickleball the official sport. Mm, that hurts if you're Amazon or, or Costco and you didn't make the list, but, but pickleball did. Um, that, uh, that made me smile. Any, anything else to end the show with my team? I want to jump about pickleball because, uh, mm-hmm. my, my sister-in-law and my brother are obsessed with pickleball. They actually, my sister-in-law actually run like tournaments for pickleball, like nice. big tournaments. And it's like the amazing, and like, she's like serious about it. She like told me, she's like, I like to play. There's levels that you play in pickleball. And she said, oh, I, I'm a four, but I like to play against level five people to challenge myself. So there's, oh. there's people that are committed to the sport. Oh, very good. Yeah, it's a thing. Anything else before we got a minute and 20 seconds left? Um, this is Martin. I'm very, um, very buoyed up by the sight of my daughters, uh, once again, doing things uh, like music in public. Uh, they, she, my older daughter goes to Roosevelt High, and we had the uh, Hot Java Cool Jazz at the Paramount last weekend, and it was just a blast. I mean, that was two springs ago. That was canceled, and everything went underground, and now now these kids uh, can once again perform in public, and they're hoping to go to New York, and it's 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 kind of cheerful to see that. Yeah, Roosevelt's a great jazz program. Jonathan, anything to leave us with? Pickleball? Uh, my, well, my, my smile for the weekend is I'm going spring skiing. It's, uh, uh-huh. uh, it's trying to squeeze in the last little bit, uh, of the season. Um, so, Crystal. um, not, maybe not quite in shirt sleeves yet, but, uh, <laughs> Baker, Crystal, you got to go pretty high. Uh, Steven's, I have a pass. Oh, I have Steve, Steven's pass and it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, oh, it's still got snow. All right. Well, enjoy the snow pickleball, I assume, is, what, is what's happening up there. Uh, Jonathan Martin, uh, Senior Investigations Editor, Seattle Times. Martin Costi, NPR's National Desk Correspondent, Law Enforcement Reporter, among other things. Crosscut Central and Eastern Washington Reporter, Mai Wong. Great job this, uh, this last hour. Thanks a lot for being Week in Review. Thanks a Thank lot. Thank you for having us. Hey, thanks, Bill. 
Our show is produced by Kevin Kniestet, social media and live streaming by Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza, and Catherine Banwell's operating our board and making us sound great today. I'm Bill Radke. We'll talk to you next week.